Thank you for joining. I'm Emily Brock, the director of GFOA's Federal Liaison Center in Washington, D.C. Um, appreciate everybody um, joining um, um, joining the call. If you can, if you're not speaking, if you could mute your line, that would be especially helpful. I'm looking at you, Maureen. If you could mute your line, <laughs> I hear you typing. <laughs> so. Um, Thank you all for joining. Many of you joined last week, really appreciate it. I did have the opportunity to sleep, I think a grand total of seven hours between then and now. So um, me and my team, uh, Michael Bellarmino, Michael Thomas and Maureen Haroon have been working furiously to try to figure out the most up-to-date information as it develops um, and appreciate your time and attention today. We're gonna give you the most up-to-date information as we know it. Um, and we are going to obviously, as Maureen mentioned, if you can email her questions or if you have um, chat capabilities, be sure to chat those questions. We're going to today talk about the stimulus three, the third package that just passed the house about two hours ago. Um, and we're gonna talk about what, um, what are the, uh, the concepts that are included, the provisions that are included that specifically relate to state and local government. So the things we were tracking along with our sister organizations. Um, so again, thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thank you so much for all that you're doing and all of your outreach. Um, as you know, COVID-2, which is the second stimulus package passed last week. In that package, there was a provision to uh, for state and local governments or rather public employers um, to provide two additional weeks of paid sick time for specifically related to COVID sickness um, or illness. Um, in this third package, I can tell you that there was um, no amendments to any prior stimulus package. So what that means is um, the mandate is still there for public employers to provide two additional sick leave um, weeks for COVID related illness. Um, but at the same time, it does not provide the refundable tax credit to state and local government employers. Those are those employers who do participate in Social Security. You will not be eligible for the refundable tax credit that will be offered to private entities who have to also um, provide those two extra uh, weeks of leave time. Um, we are working with the House right now to try to continue that um, effort to try to ensure that state and local governments are included um, to, to receive the refundable tax credit. Um, but as of now, the way that COVID-3 is passing, um, there is no direct address of that provision. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention is that now we're on COVID-3. Um, many of you probably have heard that there is talk about a fourth stimulus and some some folks dare to say there's a there will be a fifth stimulus. And, um, you know, I think there is a lot of room. I, I honestly think there's still a lot of room for the federal government to um, to provide relief for state and local governments that have has not been addressed in this. Um, bill. This bill specifically, the way that they were talking about it on the Senate, the they were debating for quite some time, sort of famously, a lot of key provisions. Um, they made it very clear to, uh, to as they were talking through and discussing through co this, this third stimulus, that um, this was the band-aid. This was the thing that tried to stop um, stop the problems that are immediate. This was the um, the uh, thing that were, was going to address the economy and the workers and the small businesses and the state and local government challenges for immediate needs. That is, it generally, um, it generally provides provisions that would provide relief for COVID-related operational expenses. This doesn't necessarily address long-term uh, policies or provisions that would look into the future. Now that said, um, as folks are talking about COVID, uh, about the fourth stimulus, in this stimulus right now, um, one of our key asks was for the Federal Reserve to enter the municipal market as an institutional investor. One of our major asks was for um, the Federal Reserve to establish a fund where they too could enter the secondary market. Um, 
where they could enter the secondary market as any other institutional investor and help to stimulate some type of activity between issuers and investors again. Because as many of you know, the market ceased up recently and we've had a couple of days of rally, which is awesome. Um, but at the same time, we're not certain that the two days of rally that have just happened are as a direct result of being in a sort of an emotional market. Everybody was excited that um, the Senate was actually addressing market issues. Um, and we're not certain that this um, will, uh, this rally will necessarily continue. It really is important, obviously, for us, and we keep our eyes um, very much focused on the long end of the yield curve. A lot of um, issuers need to have longer term um, placements in the market. They need to you know, finance their capital projects um, and need to have good pricing on their primary offerings. So of course, what we're doing when we're communicating with the Federal Reserve as they start to think about a program that would make them an institutional investor in our marketplace, that they also understand the key importance here, which is to stimulate activity that would allow for better pricing on the long end of the yield curve um, for primary offerings. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention quickly, um, that's sort of an aside outside of um, the third stimulus, is the fact that many of you have brought this up and I've had several conversations or we have had several conversations with our state organization partners such as NAST and NGA. Um, a major concern of changing the federal tax filing date and in many cases decoupling um, the challenges that um, will occur with a cash flow that will be absent for a lot of issuers between the month of April and now the new IRS tax filing date, which is July 15th. Um, that has, has, is, a, is, a, is a bit of a challenge, especially if we are experience a market, experiencing a market that isn't quite active or ready to take on new issues. So what we've got to make sure that we understand and that we're communicating with the Federal Reserve and the United States Treasury is that they understand the difference um, between the tax filing deadlines and the cash crunch, the potential for the cash crunch that might occur in those three months for state and local governments and local governments especially who depend on income taxes. Um, that that um, that has not been built into the third stimulus, but I can tell you that I just got off the phone with Treasury and this is on their mind, that they are very concerned about that. They understand that there is going to be significant likes in but or there's going to be three extra months and uh, without cash flow um, that will be a challenge for state and local governments. And so we're trying to think of a way outside of Congress that might help to relieve that burden for state and local governments at that period of time. Um, Last topic I did want to mention, I, I'm ready to dive into the third stimulus and, and pretty soon I'll turn it over to my team who have been monitoring all of the provisions for state and local governments in the third stimulus. The one thing that really has gotten a lot of attention recently um, has been what's called the State Stabilization Fund. It's $150 billion that is a direct allocation to states and local governments. Um, it's $150 billion. Um, it is uh, established, there is, um, in theory, um, it would be allocated by population to different states. I say that in theory because there has been no definitive directive yet. This treasury program has not been established yet. So um, what we're trying to do is figure out through the words that we have in the legislation what it might look like. Um, and what we think it looks like is that it may be an application process. That is the states apply to um, the treasury to relieve reimbursement, to receive reimbursement for their COVID related expenses. Um, the, the states themselves could apply. But then in addition, there's a clause that says that local units of local government can also apply to the United States Treasury for direct reimbursement as long as those local governments have a population of 500,000 or more. Um, and so 
What that means is the states may appeal to the Treasury to get their allocation of the $150 billion, but also local governments who are above the population size of 500,000 or more can also apply for those reimbursements from the United States Treasury. And you may be asking yourself, what happens to everybody else? What happens to the rest of the local governments? Um, and then talking with Schumer's office uh, two days ago, um, there and, 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 and Senator Schumer is the minority leader in the Senate and also part drafter of the bill, of course. Um, his response was, well, the local governments underneath a population size of 500,000 um, people will have to appeal to the governor to be a part of that program. Um, the other, uh, uh, I think, um, idiosyncrasy of this policy <laughs> is that um, there's a definitive split um, that's articulated in the law. What that means is um, of the $150 billion, um, territories and, um, and uh, Guam and Puerto Rico and um, Native American tribes are allocated 11 of those billions of dollars. So $11 billion goes um, directly to tribes and um, territories. So of the rest that's left, um, an allocation formula will be made based on population size for um, states. And then, of course, the units of government who have over 500,000 people can also apply. Um, but one of the provisions is that the local governments can apply for no greater than 45% of their own state's allocation. Um, in states that have one unit of government that may be over 500,000 people, what that means is those units of local government will be eligible to receive 45% of that state's allocation. Um, I'm, I'm really picking apart a concept that has not been established by Treasury yet. So again, we don't have de definitions or definitive allocations, but we're certainly working through those with Treasury. And once we have um, an exact formula, we will be sure to report that back. But I think what's very, very important about all of this, um, especially with the state stabilization fund itself, is that it becomes more important than ever right now to track COVID-related expenses. In the event that these are application programs, it's very important to stay on top of those expenses and that um, they too may be reimbursable under whatever program um, that uh, those expenses fall. Um, so with that caveat, those are um, sort of the big headliners that a lot of you made a, a significant amount of research uh, of, of outreach on the Hill, and we want to thank you again for all of your time and attention to this. Um, I want to pass it over to my team, Michael Bellarmino and Michael Thomas and Maureen Haroon, to talk through a few more of uh, the provisions in um, the third stimulus. Sorry, before Michael, before you start, I just, um, to everyone who just in. I just want to reiterate what I said at the beginning. Comments will be addressed at the end of this meeting, and you can utilize the comment section here, address them directly to me, and I will let everyone know at the end. If you have dialed in, please direct your questions to my email, which is marine.haroon at gfoa.org. So that's M-E-H-R-E-E-N dot H-A-R-O-O-N at G-F-O-A.org. I believe my name spells out that way on the chat, but yeah, go ahead, Michael. Thank you. Uh, actually, I wanted to take a second, Emily. I don't know if you wanted to let uh, either Peg or Michelle do the quick update regarding Gatsby. That's right. Sorry. Great news. We did hear back from Gatsby. It sounds like there's some activity on our request. Uh, for delaying implementation of certain standards. Michelle, are you on the line? I am on the line. So yes, yesterday at GASB's meeting, they put onto their technical agenda, and this is not anything final yet, they put onto their technical agenda a project which is proposing to push back the implementation of basically every standard and implementation guide that has yet to be fully implemented. 
This is something that they will have to go through their due process on. It is expected that in April they will the board will vote to issue an exposure draft proposing this extension. They will have a month of comment period. They need to have a 30-day minimum comment period. And hopefully in the middle of May, at their May board meeting, they will vote on this extension. So anybody who is still struggling with GASB 84 fiduciary activities or well into the process of implementing GASB 87 leases or GASB 88, which is the disclosures for debt, there is a list that um, Emily may circulate of all of the pronouncements that this would affect. Again, this is not final yet. It wouldn't be final until mid-May, but it is excellent news. It is right along the lines of what we had asked for when GFOA submitted a letter to the board asking for a delay. If anybody has any questions, you can let me know. You can submit them and I will answer them later. Wonderful. Thank you, Michelle. Great news. Glimmer of a silver lining here. So thank you. Um, I'm sorry. Can I ask? A, so you're basically saying we may not have to implement that early. Or, at all, or yeah, okay. That's correct. We, you may have an extra year essentially to implement anything that has not been implemented yet. Great. Thank you, Michelle. I wanted to turn it over to Michael Bellarmino and Federal Liaison Center. All right, thank you. Making sure you guys can hear me. All right. Well, thanks again. I just want to take a few minutes just to cover a couple of other things and underscoring, of course, what Emily already mentioned. Uh, we're, we're through the legislating process, but of course, the implementation is really where we're going to get a lot of questions uh, or unanswered questions, hopefully answered. Uh, I just want to add a couple of other things a little bit to the the COVID relief fund that she talked about, the $150 billion. There were some qualifiers in there, um, in addition to having to be costs incurred to the, the public health emergency. Uh, the expenditures were also not accounted for in the budget most recently approved as of the date of enactment of this bill. We're still working to get some clarification on that. And then the expenses were incurred from March 1 of this year through December 30th. Uh, of this year, so essentially starting March 1 to the end of this year. Uh, we will continue to work with our partners as we try to get some clarity on uh, the implementation of this. I do also want to uh, mention, because Emily mentioned the income taxes, one of the other things that has kind of come to our attention as well as uh, relates to property taxes, because as some of you might know, in the legislation there is a forbearance of mortgage payments that was included. And so I think there, you know, is a question, of course, um, or the forbearance actually could be anywhere from six months to a year. So I know uh, some questions have come up regarding how that's going to impact uh, property tax collection, because, of course, with some of the mortgage payments, you are including uh, payments for your property taxes. We do know that at least the mortgage service, mortgage service industry has, you know, tried to reach out. Uh, regarding, you know, this concern and, and, well, the concern in general regarding the fact that they do still have to afford payments regardless of whether uh, a borrower is sending their payment or not. And so that is still a discussion that's happening and, and it's still something that we're trying to figure out how um, that's going to play out. A couple of the other programs that I'll just uh, lightly touch on, again, all of this is additional or most of this is additional funding um, because of the COVID-related responses. So uh, as it relates to things like under the Department of Housing and Urban Development, uh, many of you are probably familiar with the Community Development Block Grant Program. There was an additional $5 billion to address uh, COVID-19 as it relates especially to services for senior citizens, the homeless and public health services. $2 billion of that additional funding out of that $5 billion would be distributed using the existing formula, uh, while $1 billion would go to states based on a formula that HUD has yet to develop. Um, and then the, stud, the state can then turn around and allocate that to both entitlement and non-entitlement communities. And the remaining $2 billion, of course, will go to the states and localities based on another formula that is yet to be developed by HUD. But HUD actually has about 30 days under the law I think from the date of enactment in order to come up with that additional formula. 
And then, of course, justice programs are impacted. Uh, there was an additional $850 million for the Burn Justice Assistant Grant Program, and that goes towards assisting state and local law enforcement uh, and jails to help prevent, prepare for, and to respond to uh, the, the coronavirus outbreak. And then there was a, a good chunk that was actually uh, given, at least in, in this stimulus package, to help hospitals uh, and to help the health system in general. Well, $1.5 billion uh, for CDC state and local preparedness grants was, was provided. Uh, these can be used for grants for, uh, to, for the rent, lease, purchase, and acquisition and construction or renovation of non-federally owned facilities to improve preparedness and response capability at the state and local level. Um, and then, of course, mentioned the additional help for the hospitals. There was at least $100 billion for the Public Health and Social Services Emergency Fund uh, for the necessary expenses and, you know, to be able to reimburse eligible health care providers for any of the health care related expenses or the lost revenues attributed to the COVID-19. And then we mentioned on last week's call regarding making sure, you know, children who were, you know, participating in some of the, the lunch programs or even the breakfast programs through their schools, uh, that was $8.8 billion in additional funding for the child nutrition, child nutrition programs, uh, which includes, of course, among others, the National School Lunch Program and the School Breakfast Program. So with that, I will uh, let Michael Thomas talk a little bit about some transportation and infrastructure issues. Michael, I'm not sure if you're muted or not. There, there we go. Hey guys, I can use a computer. Thank you, Mike. Let me go ahead and uh, go through transportation infrastructure uh, and some economic development uh, grant funding. A lot like Mike said, it's uh, really just kind of starts with the funding coming in, implementation sort of being the second act that we're all gonna have to follow here. Um, really for uh, transportation, the Federal Transit Administration, uh, the FTA really got the, the bulk of, of what they were throwing out for now, 25 billion, a uh, very broad uh, directive. The, the goal is simply to keep all transit, all major transit open. Uh, they're going to allocate it uh, based on apportionments from fiscal year 20 uh, to states and the other entities that apply for, for grants. Uh, how that shakes out in individual grant programs, that's something we're gonna have to dig into in the coming weeks. Um, all operational and capital costs, obviously, related to response, preparation, uh, or amelioration of the COVID crisis are covered. Uh, the, the big uh, topic for now with infrastructure and transportation is going to be set around airports for obvious reasons. Uh, the FAA will have just under $10 billion made available to them, uh, the vast majority of which, $9.4 billion, uh, is simply laid out as prevention, preparedness, and response uh, to COVID. A uh, half a billion uh, to increase the federal share up to 100% for projects that are funded by the AIP grant. Uh, that's just allowing more federal dollars in there so that we can make up for those shortfalls that are coming. Uh, and then an additional 100 million for general aviation airports, for again, raising up that uh, share matched whoever it was before to 100%. Uh, so federal funding doesn't have to be capped off or doesn't have to be limited to anticipate any of those oncoming shortfalls. Uh, after that, it's, it's a bit of a smattering of uh, different economic development grant programs. Uh, you know, not to speculate too much, as Emily had alluded to before, there could be future stimulus packages coming through. Uh, and right as this last one was getting wrapped up, Speaker of the House uh, Nancy Pelosi did mention that infrastructure could be more of a center uh, to the next ones coming up. Uh, so beyond the FTA, beyond the airports, uh, not a whole lot there. We do have uh, burgeoning grant programs such as the Community Services Block Grant. That's a billion dollars. Uh, again, broad strokes directives driven uh, to for unemployment, economic disruption that's caused by the COVID crisis. Beyond that, uh, we're waiting on more for water infrastructure. It was noted that there wasn't a, a ton included and there wasn't a huge discussion, but again, that was something they'd be casting a line out in the future for. Uh, the Economic Development Administration, they will be given a $1.5 billion allotment to revitalize communities simply after the pandemic crisis. So again, this is more throwing funds out, casting that line, and kind of working on implementation uh, once they get there. 
Uh, we'll see how the applications, procedures, all that stuff shakes out. That's going to be a main focus of our attention here uh, to make sure there isn't look out for anything we need to notify you guys for. Uh, but with that, uh, good to go ahead and move it over to uh, Mayreen, who I believe will be at the very least covering education. Hi, before I start, I just, um, I apologize, Natalie. I should have said this earlier, Paul. Natalie wanted me to mention to everybody who dialed in to um, keep track of costs incurred related to the extra weeks of sick leave. And in addition to that, she mentioned GFOA could set up a mailbox for finance officers to send their cost estimates for sick leave, short-term borrowing to bridge the tax filing delay, et cetera. And with that, I'm just going to move on to my part, which covered schools. So the bill establishes an education stabilization fund. And in there, it's included $30 billion in funding to assist schools that were heavily impacted by COVID-19. Of that funding, $13.5 billion will be given to states to put toward elementary and secondary education. So states are to distribute at least 90% of that $13.5 billion to local schools in terms of COVID-19 response-related activities. So this would be in terms of planning, coordination, any technology that was purchased for transitioning online for learning supplying school facilities with supplies for sanitation purposes, et cetera. Additionally, over $14 billion is going toward higher education where emergency relief fund will be utilized for activities pertaining to the preparation, prevention, and response to higher education institutes that were impacted by COVID-19. And of that, of that $14 billion, funds can be used to reimburse additional expenses that were made by the higher education institutes due to the virus. So for example, lost revenue, again, technology that was purchased to transition for online learning, training faculty and staff in terms of how to mitigate in terms of the virus, payroll. Additionally, grants are also included for students in terms of their costs of attendance, which would cover their food, housing, course materials, technology, healthcare, et cetera. And then finally, we have $3 billion, which will be distributed among governors of each state. So the grant amount allocated to each state's governor is to be calculated in accordance to the population of the state. So 60% on the basis of their relative population of individuals ages 5 through 24, and then 40% on the basis of their relative number of children counted under the Elementary and Secondary Education Act of 1964. And the funds um, from there may be used for emergency support for state and local schools that were significantly affected by the coronavirus to aid in continuing educational services determined by the governor. Basically, the key takeaway in terms of education and schools in this bill is funding is provided for education in the way that it relates to how schools were heavily impacted by COVID-19. Um, Emily, is there anything you wanted to add? No, just um, in general, before we get to questions, um, I wanted to provide you all our, our knee-jerk reactions, or at least the things that kind of uh, made us furrow our brow when we finally saw the final, final draft of the bill. Um, you, you just heard there's a lot of opportunities for state and local governments to work with their federal partners to categorically receive um, compensation or at least reimbursement for the cost of COVID right now. The, um, we are a little surprised, or at least uh, you know we, we keep talking about it, that $150 billion state stabilization fund, we're, we're pretty shocked at how small that is, to be perfectly honest. Um, in our survey, which was um, 100 and, uh, 1,100 uh, members of GFOA you know, responded to our survey just to talk about what types of costs are going to increase what types of revenues and magnitude of, of, of decrease of revenues, um, and then any kind of capital projects that are being um, sort of put off. Of those 1,100 folks that responded, we're talking um, in the $23 billion range of lost revenues. And so if you think about that, you could probably multiply that by 80,000 public entities, and that's a lot more than $150 billion. Um, and so that's why I think when we look at the, um, the, the total package, that's kind of a small number. The other surprise I think that many of us thought in sort of the public world was that um, there was very little reference to public works or public water or public utilities. Um, and that in and of itself is a bit of a challenge. Um, 
And as you're trying to ensure that, um, you know, the water stays on, a lot of the local governments are taking on those costs and those are most certainly COVID related expenses. Um, those were not addressed in this bill. So, so as a follow-up to stimulus four, if you are, if you have any ideas or thoughts or ways that GFWA may help to advance very specific ideas of, of the things that were left out of this bill, we'd be very interested in working with you to help uh, to, to, to try to think about how we can position ourselves best for stimulus four. We certainly think that there's opportunities for long-term infrastructure asks that we've been asking for, um, but, but there are many other things that still can be addressed. So appreciate your feedback on that and appreciate your time listening to us today. And with that, I'll turn it back over to Maureen for questions. Right, so the first question comes from, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing your last name, Marion G or Marion G? I'm gonna go with G, I apologize. Um, she asks, can special districts that serve more than 500,000 apply directly to the U.S. Treasury for reimbursement? Marion, that's a great question. Marion is the president of GFOA as of, uh, well, as <laughs> coming up. Um, Marion, um, we um, uh, do not have any language that would give us any confidence telling you yes. Right now, the way that the state stabilization fund is written, it says um, state governments have access to the funds and local governments of populations over 500,000 have access to the funds. Um, we've, we've talked um, with the National Association of Counties, for example, there are a lot of counties with cities um, inside of them, obviously, who have budgetary um, partnerships. Um, we've asked if there is any interpretation from the Treasury about decoupling that or applying it to a special district who serves uh, a district far greater than 500,000 um, uh, households. Um, they have not given us any directives on that, Marion, but I guarantee you we are pushing that because that is a, um, I think it would be a significant oversight had they not included. Um, special districts, and especially when you think about utility districts. If if I can add on to that, and this is Yvette Downs, um, New Orleans does not have over 500,000 residents, but obviously it's at the epicenter of the state of Louisiana for the current problem. So that is a major gap in that legislation. I'm just sort of preaching to the choir, but I just kind of want to point that out as if we're really trying to solve the problem and get resources where they're needed, New Orleans would not have access to that money. Right, so um, thank you for that. And the next question is from Karen Bell. This is for you, Michael um, Bellamino. Are you saying that local governments might feel the impact of loss in property tax revenues? Uh, well, at this time, the way, you know, how this could potentially pan out, I think, is more like what Emily was discussing regarding the delay uh, in the or the postponement of the federal filing date. I think for this, because there would be the forbearance, it's only a forbearance, so it only allows them to, to you know, basically not make their payments for 180 days for the first for the first go around and they can apply for an additional 180 day forbearance, but the payments at the end will still be due. So I think it's more a delay in the receipt of the, the property taxes versus the loss. Um, so we're, we're just trying to, again, get a, get a sense of what that's really going to look like, because this does apply only to federally backed mortgages. So personally, I don't know at the top of my head what that universe looks like. And borrowers would still need to go through their servicer and, and go through, uh, I think they'd have to file some sort of paperwork just to uh, certify that they are actually under hardship. And I'm not sure that there was actual clear definition as far as what that hardship means, whether that meant like, you know, losing, being laid off or something along those lines, but they would have to certify that they are under a hardship uh, and would and are seeking that forbearance. So. At this point, again, not necessarily a, a loss, but maybe a delay in the receipt of those property tax payments. 
Okay, and this one is for you, Michael Thomas. Um, username, I apologize. I will be missing that username. Um, is there in the package relief for toll facilities that has been devastated financially due to stay-at-home orders? For stay-at-home orders to impact those, that's that's a good, that's a very good question. Um, after reading plenty of this text, but um, you know, admittedly in a scattershot fashion, because this is a very fluid situation, I have not seen language that specifically addresses that. So I'm going to absolutely make note of that and kind of do my research there, try to go ahead and get back any any new news, anything like that, that's gonna get put up on our GFOA coronavirus response webpage. Uh, if I'm able to get to something there, because again, very good question, I will absolutely provide an update. Okay, and Kate Grangard, apologize if I pronounced that wrong, asks if there will be a recap, will a recap be available or a resource stood up with the various segments of the bill and links to the applications as they evolve. Do we know if it will be first come first serve? Will they rotate based on a due date of receipt or of request, or will it be at their discretion? Don't know who that was for, but I will field that one. Uh, just like what I had said earlier, everything will be put up either on the member alert or the coronavirus response page. I and everyone else in GFOA actively submit links and, uh, and pertinent information to help all of you. Now, uh, in terms of addressing the question and how the exact trickle down the procedure for that funds, that is the second act of what we'll be doing at the FLC. Uh, after this week, it's gonna be all about getting in touch with our friends at, at FEMA, at DOT. We have contacts there and see exactly how those kinds of things are gonna shake out down at, at the more granular level. and. Believe you me, that will be one of the first things that we're going to be trying to get information on and updating all of you with. Marine, I would add, hi, Kate, thank you for the question. Um, for the state stabilization fund itself, um, there has been a little bit more of an articulated guideline. They've said that every state, um, not, not a single state will receive any less than 1.25 billion. And so what that means is, the smallest states will receive at least 1.25 billion. Um, the other states increase of their proportion based on their population size. Um, so it'll go from 1.25 billion in, let's say, Delaware to much, much larger in Texas. Um, and then you've got to think about Texas and the size of the cities inside of Texas that will also be competing for those funds along with their state. Um, you ask if it's a if if there's a pecking order or if there's a rules um, of priority. Those have not been set. That is the very next thing that Treasury will do, and I can absolutely guarantee you we are having discussions right now with them about what that looks like, and we'll update that PDF with the applications. To your point, your very good point about making sure that you have a one-stop resource or where to find those applications and know the processes um, in applying for those funds. So thank you for that question. If I could add to that, Emily, uh, since I've, I've been the one sort of drafting our documents for that, uh, we will be putting up a document that has links embedded for the individual department. And for right now, as close as we can get to getting you directly to a, you know, where do I get my funding page? The truth is this is all happening so fast that those web pages are being updated probably as we speak. So if you don't see what you're looking for now or you don't see something direct, we'll be working to make sure we're finding the most direct route there as those web pages get updated by the federal government. Okay, and the next question is from A121AJS. Hi, can you clarify whether the language regarding the 500,000 population threshold references only cities or whether it includes the tribal government and other local governments reference? For example, counties. Oh, it does reference um, tribal tribal governments. Um, the tribal governments have a direct well, have a direct allocation. I believe it's six billion. Then territories have the other five billion. Um, so those are direct and allocated specifically to those types of governments, the territories and the tribes. When we talk about 
counties, they have been very explicit in using the tax language for um, local governments. And what that means is it does say that local governments are cities and or counties. But the challenge is, is that we're having a tough time <laughs> figuring out if the city, let's say um, uh, you are um, Fresno, and the city is a part of or has an intimate budgeting relationship with the county that surrounds it, and you share budgeted expenses. Um, and the city itself is only 300,000, but the county is 400,000. Um, is that together one unit of over 500,000 people? Or I think more importantly too, is Marion's question. I'm a, a water district and I service five counties or I, I service the city and a county and I've got a lot more than 500,000. Those are explicitly not included in the language. So I'm not, oh, there we go. There's one question from Nkuki. Could Emily provide a brief update on continuing disclosure or material event notices related to delayed tax payments and our outstanding bonds? Sure, thank you, Dan. Um, the, um, so we're continuing to have conversations with the debt committee to um, the Securities and Exchange Commission or the SEC and the MSRB or the Municipal Securities Rulemaking Board. The MSRB, as you know, it houses the EMMA filing system. Um, and those who have debt outstanding, um, you know that there are required disclosures according to your continuing disclosure agreement um, for keeping up with um, their agreements or undertakings that you have in order to keep up with your investors. Um, so, so quick point, um, there may be challenges in ensuring that material events are filed on time. You know, we've talked with a lot of jurisdictions where, um, you know, part of the challenge was, of course, making sure that, you know, compliance with GASB happens when you're, when you have a lot of people kind of spread out and nobody's in the central office. Compiling a CAFR in the first place is incredibly difficult to do. So we've talked with the GASB, we've talked with the MSRB, and we've talked with the SEC about that. Um, the SEC has responded to us saying, your continuing disclosure uh, requirements are still in place. In addition, your continuing disclosure responsibilities under SEC Rule 15P212, that is your 15, 16 listed material events, still have to be filed within 10 days of that material event happening. So please understand there is absolutely no delay or even a suggestion of a delay in the material events reporting or any contractual obligations of, of filing underneath your continuing disclosure agreement. However, if you can't, if you are, if, if, if the CAFR does not come together and it is not able to be provided in, within the timeframe that you've agreed upon in your continuing disclosure agreement, then what you should do is consider filing a failure to file. Um, that way you are still telling the marketplace, you are still telling um, you know, the investors that you are aware of that and that you are working on that. So failure to file based on COVID-related challenges or human resource challenges is, is something that um, folks are definitely addressing. The other thing that the Debt Committee has discussed in great detail is um, uh, interim reporting or um, uh, reporting that may be of voluntary nature, sort of outside of your continuing disclosure agreement. Is there information, is there factual information that you'd like to prepare and submit on Emma that would communicate to your investors? I can tell you I've received that conversation or that question from a lot of GFOA members recently. Um, they are working closely with their bond council to make a determination of what information investors need to have. 
um, and or their investors need to have in particular. But we would suggest that you talk with your bond council about what types of interim financial information you think are most appropriate um, at this point in time that would be helpful to the market. Um, we're at a point where the market needs as much information and fluidity as, as we can get. Um, so, so we would encourage you to, to check on a couple of best practices, um, continuing disclosure agreement, continuing disclosure responsibilities, and then in addition, post-issuance um, compliance and procedures. Um, those are two best practices that are instructive on how to and when to um, file on Emma. So thank you for that question, Dan. Just know that question, it, 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 that's a fluid question too, but we are continuing to try to ensure that the SEC and the MSRB and the investor community understands, and I think they do, the challenges of providing that financial information um, um, at this point in time as you have other priorities popping up. Thanks, Emily. I'm not seeing any more questions. Um, again, I know some people dialed in so they can't utilize the comment section. At this point, since we are getting close to the end, if somebody wants to chime in and ask a question if they're on call, do that. If not, I think that's it. All right, so I did get one last question. Um, I got an emailed question, <laughs> a curveball by email. Um, one of the debt committee members sent me a question about the, um, the, the 4003 facility is what I'm starting to call it. The 4003 facility is the $454 billion that has been allocated to to, to the Federal Reserve to invest in our secondary market. Um, the current state of affairs is that it is just past the House. When the bill makes it over to the Federal Reserve, when the bill makes it over to the Treasury, the Treasury has to take that $454 billion and say, all right, Congress, what was your intent on this language in particular? What do you want me to do with this money. And the way that Congress has written this particular 4003 facility is that the $454 billion has to go to one, direct loans to small businesses. So they're told to use that $454 billion to loan to small businesses like your, you know, your dry cleaners and your restaurants and everybody else um, has to apply for a loan with the federal government have access to that $454 billion. We share that $454 billion with the small, uh, with the small businesses. So we are also written into 4003, but it's a provision that says, federal government, you need to use a portion of that $454 billion to provide a facility that would invest in our secondary market. Um, I can tell you I've been on a call, two calls today with the Federal Reserve Board. Um, I, they are thinking very, very seriously about how they would like to structure that facility. They're talking about what types of assets they would like to include in their portfolio. They're talking about whether or not they should engage a, a broker dealer on their behalf. I mean, they're talking about ways that they might be able to fully implement this in order to have swiftness in, um, in, in, in their ability to make these investments rather quickly. So it's, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is the Federal Reserve is not like, all right, we'll just wait till we get it and then we'll figure out what to do with it. No, instead they have been very proactive on saying, we're not really skilled in this muni stuff. How do we get to know it better? What do the assets look like? Like, what do we think we want to be as an institutional investor? And they're going to play in that space. When it comes down to what share of the $454 billion is this fund going to get, I think that there is still probably some flexibility on that. And so we're trying to make sure that we get that, that the fund itself allows to, um, the fund itself allows for some energy in the short end of the yield curve, 
it allows for the federal government to take some of the some of the supply that's sort of like blocking up the broker dealers books right now so that there is an exchange that happens between the issuer and the investor and we can start going to market with primary offerings again so that's how that's working it is it is not a direct loan facility to state and local governments it is not that um, instead, it is a facility, again, that allows for the investor to be part of that, um, that uh, investment um, objective of the federal government. I saw a comment come in. Yeah, Emily, this is for you. But that $454 billion is also money that will be able to be leveraged, correct? Yes, that's correct. Yes, so it will be able to be leveraged by the Federal Reserve. So, yes. Um, I understand that I had everyone muted, so I'm going to unmute everyone, and let's just see if anybody on who dialed in has any questions. This um, bear with the noise, but let's see. Anyone with questions? Um, it does not appear to be so. Back to you, Emily. Yeah, that kind of sounded like I was walking through a graveyard or something. <laughs> All right. Well, I thank you. Yes, go ahead. Can you hear me? It's Lisa Marie Harris. Um, as Lisa a Marie. water authority, we, we're liking, we're, we're wanting to explore 0% increases, even though we should be probably increasing in double digits. So if there's any federal support in allowing for um, zero rate increases for utilities, that would be helpful. Great. Thank you, Lisa Marie. Definitely. All right. Thanks, everyone, for your time today. Really appreciate it. And I have another call scheduled next week at the same time if you're able to join. We hope to have more answers, more forms, more programs set up by then. Um, would very much. Um, like to keep the conversation alive. Thanks again for joining us today, everyone.